Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest has been advising law firms and other professional services organizations for over 30 years. He is the author of two books that highlight his experience with proposals. One he authored during 2017, Winning Proposals, The Essential Guide for Law Firms and Legal Service Providers. John DeFort, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. It's very good to be with you today. Great to have you as a guest on our program, John. Let's jump into our questions. Your latest book talks about the effects of the changing legal environment on the bidding and proposal process. What specifically had the largest impact on the process and how have bidding firms and service providers adjusted? I think, well, probably the biggest single change has been the growth in the influence of professional purchasers, the procurement departments. I mean, they've been with industry for many years, but I think probably the legal sector might have been one of the last bastions. Partly because in-house counsel do their own procurement. They were contract lawyers. But I think what we've seen over the last five years in particular is a growing acceptance. Professional purchaser has a role which is distinct from in-house counsel in selecting advisors. And although they may not be at this stage all that influential in making the final decision, they have become increasingly influential, I think, in selecting the shortlist and influencing the sorts of questions that are now put to law firms in a tendering context. In terms of what the firms have done to adjust to it, I think one thing we've seen, I know this perhaps from experience more in the UK than elsewhere, but I think it's been also certainly the case in the US. We've seen an influx of specialists operating in the bidding and the tendering field. Many of them in the past, I think, belong just to business development. And this is one area of responsibility that they took on. But I've certainly seen now more people specializing in tendering. And I think that's something which law firms have taken on board in direct response to this change in procurement. So you mentioned a few changes there and two were influence and acceptance. And so let's dig in on those first before we talk about the specialists. Can you describe for our listeners what that influence looks like? You know, we all think of purchasing in the more general sense as a group of team members who are strong at negotiation that have the skills to talk with quote unquote, vendors and partners about pricing and contracts terms. But really, what does that look like in legal purchasing? Some crucial things to understand about the way procurement think and what their agenda is. I think if you were to ask most people, maybe in industry generally, certainly in professional services and law firms, what are procurement there to do? I think many would say they're there to cut the costs. Their primary function is to reduce the price of services provided to the organization. And, you know, you think of that famous phrase, which is often applied in this context in relation to people, you know, who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. 
In other words, I think people have been quite skeptical in the past about procurement. Procurements, obviously, they see things very differently. I mean, certainly getting value for money is one of their absolute priorities. But I think something that everyone who has to face procurement these days needs to keep uppermost in their minds is that they're really there to try and create a more objective process, to try and make the buying process more objective. And I suppose this is based on the premise that users of a service The consumer of a service is not necessarily the person who's best qualified to make the selection or maybe not to make the selection alone. So I think whenever any law firm is tackling a tendering process, they need to keep in mind the need to present themselves in the most objective terms possible. In other words, everything you say about yourself needs to be at least theoretically verifiable. And you need to be, wherever possible, providing some objective metrics on what you can contribute to that organization, which, of course, in some ways runs counter to the tradition of the chemistry of the relationship. Not to say those things aren't important, but I think nowadays law firms have to straddle two horses to succeed. Absolutely agree. And I think that's where the acceptance comes in. And of course, some of the influence You know, we talk at Left Foot about the relationship matters when all other things are equal. And I really look at legal purchasing as an opportunity to help us determine if one partner is equal to the other based on the value that that partner would bring, not only the work product, but the value that would be associated with that work product. Any comments on that? And if you could drive or communicate with our listeners how those professionals do that, you know, are able to look at different partners and connect what they're going to bring the work product with the value. Well, I think there's a few examples I would immediately think of in this context, which is different from making a traditional technical assessment of a law firm's capabilities. So the first thing, I think, one aspect of value, as it is now understood and tends to be understood by professional purchasers, as a law firm, apart from your technical expertise and your contribution to solving legal problems, what is going to be your contribution to helping us manage our legal function, our legal resource in total? In other words, we're now looking to you not only to advise us on the law, but also on the management of the law. And that might include, for example, how can we improve synergies between the in-house department and our external firms? How can we accelerate knowledge transfer to our own people? What are the areas where we can reduce costs? And I think increasingly law firms are expected to contribute managerially as well as technically, as I say, in terms of managing the, the law as a function within the organization. So that's one area that's really important. The second area I'd mention is outcomes. Outcomes are not always easy to measure. This goes back to, the, I think, the agenda about trying to make an assessment which is more objective. Let's look at what a law firm has actually achieved over the course of a year of working with an organization. What were the outcomes? Can we quantify them? What was the benefit, either in terms of reputation or in terms of the bottom line to the organization, of that law firm's intervention? Not how many hours they spent. But what was the result? And if there, you know, obviously you will take into account mitigating factors if you didn't get the result you wanted. But I think it's going to be increasingly looking at assessing outcomes rather than inputs in deciding what a law firm's real performance is. And one other area which I think is very important and again reflects, I think, where procurement is coming from is continuous improvement. I think if you are a professional, probably all of us who work in the field of professional services feel that we try to do the very best job we can 
and therefore continuous improvement isn't necessary if you are already producing a perfect service. However, if you look at this from the point of view of people who are managing professional services providers, it's rather different. I think procurement want to be able to show and to demonstrate that they're getting increasing value, value in all senses, from external suppliers. So therefore, as a firm, if you want to succeed, you have to kind of plot a way of showing them that you are capable of improving, of achieving improvement over the medium and long term. And you need to find a way of quantifying that because that increasingly is what the managers of legal services inside organizations are looking for. So I think there are three areas where you know the nature of value has changed because of the increasing importance of, of the procurement function and procurement thinking. Sure. And John, those are interesting points. And I'm thinking the way that a legal purchasing organization, a legal operations organization would be able to communicate that value is providing data, providing effective legal matter management so that they can clearly break down a matter and define costs associated, which then, of course, hopefully translates into value, component, cost, and then does the client value that. Is that really the next step? Is that something you look for in a provider? Their ability to break down what they're doing so that you can assign a price and then hopefully a value to it? Yeah, I think it's a gradual process, isn't it? I mean, these things don't change overnight, but I think it's already well advanced in many organizations. And I know many legal departments who sought, for example, advice from management consultants. That's obvious, That's very often been in the field of how can we assess our law firms with reference to outcomes? And I think that is increasingly common. So I think if you are a law firm, you have to find mechanisms that will enable your clients to do that. In other words, I think you've got to cooperate with the process. So it's incumbent, really, I think, on law firms, the external suppliers, to think about how they can help their clients measure them more effectively. Great points. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning into the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. John, because of your experience, and of course, you've dealt with a lot of different organizations, can you highlight for our listeners some of the, really the mistakes that incumbents So current providers make when they're bidding to retain their business. I mean, it's often said in this area that, I mean, there have been a number of surveys that have been done, not in the legal sector, but across industry about rebidders in tenders and the errors they make. And the most common one that's mentioned is approaching retender as if it's a business, you know, business as usual or being complacent. I have to say that's not really been my experience 
so much in the professional services sector or in the legal sector. I found that on the whole, the partners, when one of their existing clients comes up for tender, if it's a major client, are very concerned about it and aren't necessarily complacent. But I think the mistake that they often make is one that it may be rather difficult to rectify when you get to the tender, because I think planning for a retender needs to start immediately after you've won the previous one. And I suppose that's the biggest error, is not planning ahead. We've been talking, haven't we, about the increasing emphasis put on making objective assessments of firms. So it's very important that an incumbent does two things in particular. One is to log and collect and document evidence of its performance as the contract unfolds. So you're looking for examples of achievements, which you will then be able to use as evidence to support your case for being reappointed. That's, if you like, on the plus side. I think the other thing that law firms should do more of is to hold client service reviews well in advance of a tender. I mean, most of tendering, certainly in the public sector and amongst large institutions, usually is on a four or five-year cycle. Um, Two years in advance of that, you want to be able to, I think, carry out an independent review exercise very often, not the partner having a cozy chat with his client, but getting somebody independent to carry out the review and not just with the main contact, but with contacts at various levels within the organization to get feedback on the firm's performance, to identify any areas that can be improved and to understand better where the organization is going and how its needs are likely to evolve. Now, that is very useful in a tendering context, I think, because if you carry out an exercise like that, for example, two years in advance of a retender, it gives you an opportunity to not only to surface some issues which may not have emerged during the course of the day-to-day relationship, but it also enables you to institute some improvements or changes, which you can then talk about when you're required to produce a tender document two years down the track. And that helps you to build the narrative that you've been listening to the client and responding to their needs and are sensitive to their requirements. So I think, I suppose, one answer would be to make sure that you start early in planning the rebid. And that's the best way incumbents can take advantage of and make the most of the natural advantages which belong to already having a contract. No, terrific response. And I think definitely a great point for our listeners. Let me ask, so as we're going along normal course of business, a firm is working, a lawyer or a partner is working on a matter. They're successful in meeting the client's expectations around that matter. And they're now going to document that, hopefully in some kind of customer relationship management system or some kind of tool so they can track it for down the road. So there's information we're gathering. At that point, do you think it makes sense getting ahead of what might be a bid down the road? Is it helpful at that point to get their confirmation on the fact that they were happy with it? What I'm trying to avoid is the only thing the client sees is the bill associated with the successful outcome. Of course, they know the successful outcome occurred, but is there another way to document the fact that we've completed this matter and there's a ranking by possibly the person most involved so that there can be documentation along the way that we're just reproducing at the point that we're going to rebid for that work for the client? Yes, I think that is right. And I think it's all part of maintaining a dialogue. Depends on the type of services you're providing 
One thing that some firms do, especially if they're working in a context of multi-transactional type situation where you're dealing with specific projects on a regular basis, is to carry out a sort of post-transaction review, which might be a simple exercise of producing a ranking. However, I think those sorts of mechanisms have to be done with a degree of caution because the most important messages are qualitative ones. I think the sort of things you're trying to collect from your client was, you know, what was the experience of dealing with this matter? Did we make life easier for you in having to deal with the issues? Did we explain things clearly? Did we reduce the pressure for you and so on? And you don't always get that from a ranking. So I think it's more to do with maintaining dialogue. And I think that's a continuous process. I suppose I I just come back to the point that periodically, it's very good then to intervene with someone who's independent, who can take a different angle on it. But I think you want both. Of course, because you want to be able to make those small adjustments or even larger adjustments along the way, but then regroup. And then to your point, interviewing people at different levels to ensure that it's not just the core person that you're communicating with, but the, the other people within the organization who could have influence on the selection or will be contributing to a choice even at the associate level or obviously in-house at a client at not the decision-making levels, but that they're also happy with the outcome and don't feel that the service wasn't up to expectations. So great advice there. In your book, you spent some time on a topic that I think is critically important and one that professional service firms tend to struggle with. And it kind of goes along with something we have here in the States, and it's about our lottery system. People are buying a ticket to win cash. There's a saying that says, you know, you can't win if you don't play. So we hear that a lot from our law firm clients. And I'm a huge believer in professional services that you shouldn't play unless you actually can win. Talk about qualification and really how we can work with law firms, work with partners to basically do a thorough job of considering whether they actually could be successful on a particular pitch and then focusing their effort and, of course, you know, not experiencing the opportunity cost of bidding on business they had no chance of winning. Absolutely. I think qualification is, is a critical area and that probably has been a tendency among law firms and professional services providers more than other sectors, I think, to feel they can be opportunistic and to give it a go and this might be worth it. And of course, you want a more rigorous process than that. Also, it is undoubtedly, I think, well proven that if you are more selective, then you will have a higher success rate. And I think that's been proven on many occasions. So it's clear that qualification is an important issue. There's just one, if I may say so, there's just one qualification that I want to add to qualification, which is that winning isn't necessarily solely what this process is about. I mean, you very often hear the phrase that, don't you, there are no prizes for coming second, but that actually is just not true. We live in a more complex environment than that. We live in an environment where, you know, very commonly organizations are using panels. Um, If you are operating on a panel and it's a sort of cascade model where work is offered to one firm and if they can't do it, for example, through conflicts, it's offered to another firm and so on, 
your objective might be to be to get from sixth on the panel to fourth. That might be a great result for you. And there are many situations. I don't think it's a binary result. I don't think it's just win-lose. That would be the one thing I think people need to take into account. There are other circumstances where tendering can be a really effective tool in building relationship with an organization which you didn't have before. And I've certainly come across situations where people have performed really well in a tender, not one. But it's led them to getting some work. And over a period of time, that's gone on to be a very significant client. So I think all these things have to be taken into account. It's not just win-lose. And I think everyone has to go through a process by which they look at, well, four main factors, really. So strategic. So is this core business? Is it a sector that we, we care about? Is it an individual client that we care about? So I think you've got to be satisfied at the strategic level. At the tactical level, you know, is it an existing relationship? Do you have access during the tender? I think that's a really important factor because... I've just been talking about a situation where certainly were a case I've come across directly where a firm performed really well in a tender. They had no track record with the organization at all. They came out of the blue. The client was extremely impressed with what they had done in the tender, didn't feel because they knew the firm that they could appoint them immediately. But that led to a relationship. But that, of course, was only the case because that firm had access to decision makers in the process. So from a tactical point of view, a crucial thing, I think, is what kind of access are we going to get? Because if you don't have an existing relationship and you're not going to have access to the decision makers, one, you haven't got a very high chance of winning the tender. But secondly, you haven't got a very, well, you've got almost no chance of building a relationship either. In other words, it's not even a business development tool. So I think at a tactical level, access is a really important consideration in deciding whether to go for an opportunity or not. And then obviously you need to add into that logistical considerations such as do we have the resource to do the assignment and do we have the resource to do the tender properly and commercial factors. So is this going to be profitable work? What are the costs of tendering? Does working for this organization represent a risk? So I think the law firms need to work their way through those four categories in order to decide whether this is something they should go for or not. Thank you. The great, great response to that. And I have to say in my experience and I will reflect on my experience working with actuaries. We went through a, I think it was a 10 point process and it really touched on a lot of the things that you just talked about. And we did weight them differently because, you know, access to the decision makers probably should be weighted quite high right on that list. And, you know, we would talk about, you know, obviously ability to do the work, same exact things that you just mentioned. And I have to say, I agree with you that as long as we could check off a certain number of those things, it was always, in most cases, it was worthy of our time to bid because we were creating those relationships. We were getting to talk through our services and our differentiators and why an organization should consider us for something down the road. So do you have some examples, things that where qualification really was effective, of course, without names, but can you tell us a story about one? And then if you could also follow up with one that was less than effective. Well, I'm just taking, it's not a specific example, but I think good evidence of a failure to qualify occurred very frequently actually after the financial crash in 2008. Because, and I don't know to what extent this is true of the US, I think in the UK, a lot of firms started to apply for public sector work on the basis that they've, you know, a lot of their private sector clients 
had taken a hit. And of course, the point about public sector work is you don't have to be invited. There is a procedure and you can apply for it. And I think I saw a lot of firms of a certain kind, especially those sort of mid-tier, maybe more generalist firms. This obviously doesn't apply to the, the magic circle or the large corporate firms. But I think those more who'd been perhaps dependent on small businesses, on SMEs and so on. And, you know, some of that work disappeared for some of those firms. So I think they then thought, well, let's try the public sector. And I think on the whole, that was a, an example of a failure to qualify because without any track record in the sectors and without any relationships and without having put in the, the spade work in developing relationships and going to the relevant conferences and showing that you had built up a sector expertise, it was very difficult to get any kind of breakthrough. And I think it's very unlikely, whether it's in the private or the public sector, that firms are, are likely to win work if they're coming at it out of the blue. I think you have to have established some kind of track record. And you do that by getting to understand the specific requirements of the sector. So I think that would be an example of where a failure to qualify, a purely opportunistic attitude of almost, we have to fill the gap that's being created. So let's try this sector is just simply not going to work. I think in terms of cases of good qualification, I think I would point to the opposite. I think you would say, look at the people who are really committed to a sector, whatever that is. Look at people who go to the conferences, contribute to the trade media, because they're the ones who will tend to do well when it comes to a tender for a company in that sector. And I think you would say that if somebody, if the firm is really committed to a sector and is willing to invest in it, then that's an example of good qualification. And it's even if you don't win all those opportunities, you probably are doing the right thing in going for it. So I think it really comes back to commitment. Where you're committed to a particular sector, you're going to do far better. Yeah, no, I agree. We talk about niching and really developing a specialization. And that, you know, it doesn't mean you have to have it day one, but over time, attending conferences, industry conferences, not legal conferences, attending those conferences, establishing yourself, having that opportunity to get the first client and then subsequent clients in that industry, in most cases, is very much looked at as valuable to the next organization looking for that counsel. And I think in your first example, the one that wasn't so positive, that idea that, you know, you think, you know, experience in the energy sector in oil may translate to experience in energy and gas, it doesn't always translate. So we talk to firms about that. You know, there's a lot of specifics. And when you are looking at a sector, you have to really niche, as we say, niche till it hurts. You have to be in the sector very specifically. Great comments. John, at this point, I'd like to chat about bid strategy. As we go through and are working with firms, working with lawyers, we spend more time talking about who should sit next to who and who should go to the meeting than the actual strategy of what we're going to actually talk about with the organization. What are the three top things that a firm should be talking through, a legal tech firm should be talking through specific to bid strategy? Well, I would say that the first thing, and this really reflects all aspects of tendering and winning new business, is the starting point is to develop as detailed an understanding as you can of that organization, its requirements, its culture, its objectives both as an organization and also as that relates to some of the key influences within the organization. And I think that's got to be the, the starting point. 
So your tender is only ever going to be as good as your ability to demonstrate and reflect their requirements. It's not enough on its own, but I think it is fundamental to developing any bid strategy. It has to be based on the specific requirements of the organization and understanding how they see themselves, I guess, and what they're trying to achieve. Um, So the second thing then would be in order to achieve that, you know, the consideration has to be intelligence. What are our sources of intelligence? This comes back to access to some extent. You can't possibly really understand what an organization is looking for or what's going to be really important to them just by looking at an invitation to tender. So you need to establish some kind of dialogue with them and therefore look at your sources of intelligence. So a key thing, I think, is certainly to try to arrange some pre-meetings with a client wherever you can. It's not always possible, of course, but I think it's always worth trying. I think there's a tendency in the the legal sector a a little bit to think of tenders as an exercise in compliance. So you look at the deadline and you know you've got to kind of fill this in and that you'll fill it in when things are a little closer to the deadline. But actually, of course, that's not really what's happening in this type of process. Uh, We're looking for ways of getting ahead of the competition or doing better than the competition. So in order to do that, we have to go that little bit further in understanding what this organization is trying to achieve and what's going to be important to them. So intelligence is vital. And then I think the third thing is developing win themes. If you can't articulate why you are the right firm to work with this organization, then the chances are that they're not going to be able to articulate it on your behalf. So you need to understand why you're a good fit with this organization and what you're offering, which is going to be particularly appropriate to them. But a win theme is never a statement of your credentials alone. It's a statement of your capabilities, skills, or even approach to the work or style, which meets specific needs which you've already identified in the organization. So that's an important thing to understand. You know, everything you think your firm has to offer, it doesn't become a win theme until it's put in the context of a client need or objective that you've managed to identify. I think they're the most important things in developing the strategy. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. And, you know, I absolutely agree. I mean, with that idea of understanding the organization, there's so much information out there today, understanding the people, the decision makers, having that dialogue, which we spoke about. It's interesting, that idea that it's an exercise in compliance and really saying it is not. That is not what this is, right? It's about a broader approach. It's about wanting to have this entity as a client. So you want to get to know their needs. You want to get to know, to your point, their culture, their environment. I think that's a really key point. And, you know, I have to say, John, in my experience in leading pitch teams, business development teams, I've always encouraged this win theme idea. Of course, you want that client, to your point, the people in that room to be able to describe your pitch, describe your value proposition in a way that others will understand it and in a way that resonates, especially if they're looking at a large number of organizations, more than two or three. So that idea of having a win theme, I've had it work successfully where the client was using the win theme. By the time we got to the point of award, they were talking about what the win theme that we had presented because it resonated for them. A huge point. And again, I don't think we see it as often as uh, probably should in these situations. So thank you. I want to spend just a few minutes on the difference between a proposal and physical presentation. My theory on this, John, is that the proposals have less risk because we can apply a lot of people can put input into a proposal, into a response. 
we can check it. We have the opportunity to review it. We have, you know, what we call group think. A lot of people can contribute. But when we get to that face-to-face meeting, there's a lot of risk because we have to be able to hit it running. We have to be able to have a succinct message. We have to be able to think on our feet as questions are presented. In your opinion, what should firms, legal tech providers, those that are pitching to either purchasing or to the legal departments, what should they be doing in those oral presentations that you know, maybe it's something that isn't commonly done? What should they be doing in those situations? Nicole, it's a very good question. I think the first thing is to realize a business development presentation is not the same as any form, any other form of public speaking. It, it has a specific purpose, usually. And that purpose is to provide an illustration, a sort of a picture of what that firm is going to be like to work with from the point of view of the people who will be using the service. Or that's certainly going to be an important consideration. So that means that although you're there to convey information to some extent, that isn't the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to establish a rapport. And I think seen in that context, a lot of the devices that you might use, for example, in giving a seminar, visual aids, PowerPoint, and so on, can be positively destructive. Um, Similarly, I think because people want to be precise, there is a tendency, and I've seen it over 30 years, really, of people sometimes producing a script and reading it, which I think is without exception, always an unmitigated disaster. I think I understand why people get to that point. They start by writing out a script because they want to organize their thoughts. And then they think about, well, I'm going to try and abandon that now. But in fact, of course, if they either try to memorize it or to try and reproduce exactly what they put on the page, they're putting massive pressure on themselves and it doesn't work. So people tend to revert. Obviously, everyone has limited time. It's not like you've got time necessary to to learn all this off by heart. And even if you did, you would probably come across as being so stiff and rigid that you would be very unpersuasive. So I think over the years, I think I really have tried to work with lawyers on this in, in terms of getting them to not to start with a script, but instead to think entirely about structure. I think the point I try to get across to them about it very often is that you know your subject. So you don't have to worry about forgetting the detail of how you would approach a particular situation or what advice you would give in a particular situation. The reason why people go terribly wrong if they haven't planned it is because they don't have a sense of structure. So I think in order to get to the best point with them and to make sure that what they say is sound spontaneous and natural is to try and wean them off any idea of having a script, but also making sure they have a very clear sense of the structure of what they're going to say. So I think that's a really important consideration. Um, I think it's not just lawyers, is it? I mean, almost everyone has, at one time or another, retreated into, into PowerPoint, and it's usually a disaster. It's not really PowerPoint's fault. It's because it's misused. I think that isn't to say that some visual aids can't be effective, but I think it must be understood that visual aids are only effective when they complement what you're saying, or if they add something to it, or you are trying to show something which is best presented in graphical form. And also, if you are going to use them, they have to be used selectively. Don't get locked into a sort of PowerPoint, which is slide after slide. I think you have to use them very, very selectively, and you need to have a method. If you are going to draw people's attention, 
to a visual aid. You need a method for getting their attention back on you. And after the whole point is that the attention needs to be on the individual, not on a, a visual aid. When people use PowerPoint, it generally completely undermines the authority of the speaker, either because they are repeating what's already on the slide or they're saying something different, in which case you simply can't take in two sets of information at once. Both have the same effect. And I think quite obviously conveying authority and confidence is such an important element, particularly if you don't know this particular firm or group of lawyers. I think you could see in that context, over-reliance on PowerPoint or visual aids is a disaster and needs to be avoided. You need to establish a rapport in the meeting. You need to show that you are in charge of your subject and that you have authority. And the best way to do that is to strip away any barrier that could exist between you and your listeners. Absolutely agree. And I think, you know, the examples that we have today with in TED Talks, there are very few visual aids. It is about the person conveying a concept, a story, and then a conclusion around that. It's a great example for that. I can tell you, John, what I've experienced in professional services more often, and it's somewhat of probably how we got into this point of having not scripts per se, but slides, is that a lot of the professional services resources try to solve the problem in the pitch and really retreat to, again, what they know. Hopefully, we're able to convey that's a measured approach. You're able to convey what you know, but it should be in a way of, you know, based on what I know, this is how I would approach this. Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you. John, it's been terrific for you to share your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before you say goodbye? I would just, I think in terms of the written tender, although it applies really to any form of communication, I think that you have to remember, it's back to this point about objectivity, you must support everything you say with evidence. I still find, and I find it odd because we're dealing with a, you know, lawyers are, are highly educated. They probably remember sitting their exams. And if you sit an exam in order to produce a persuasive answer, you have to support it with evidence. Supporting arguments with evidence is what lawyers do all the time. And yet I see many tender documents which contain phrases which would not be verifiable for an evaluator. And it's odd to me that this happens, but it seems to me quite obvious. I think it, again, comes down to a failure of imagination in a way. They're not putting themselves in the position of the evaluator. The evaluator can't sensibly assess a value judgment. So there's no point in saying you're excellent or that you're well-established or highly regarded or any of these phrases. And I think it's the first thing I do whenever I'm given a draft to read is simply make the point. There is no point in saying anything you can't prove or which is at least theoretically verifiable. And that's probably the most obvious thing we've talked about during this whole session. But I think it's still worth saying because I think sometimes, you know, lawyers, they forget that and they think they're writing a brochure and they're not. The standard of argument you have to put forward is much higher than if you're just being given an opportunity to write about yourself. Terrific point. I've always been against those words like broad. We're broad. We're deep. We're, we're the best. We're the strongest. We're the largest. Unless there's data to support that, it's disregarded immediately. So absolutely agree. Terrific last point, John. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.